Emily, it's the shortest month of the year. <laughs> and there's <laughs> less than a week left. This isn't a leap year, right? We don't get an extra day. And no, it is not. I should know that because it's my parents' anniversary. Yeah, you should know that. But, um, but I can't tell from that statement, is that a good thing or a bad thing or just a fact? Well, it's definitely just a fact. But it's not a good thing. <laughs> I have a very uncomfortable relationship with time in life. Like you used to say it all the time. I have taken it in. Anxiety. Yeah. You have taken it in. And I, I mean, we do not have to get into it because it could be, I mean, we should start making a list of just you and me talking about (laughs) things and see if anyone cares. Um, You know, let us know on social media if you need Emily and I to talk about, you know, business, partnership, our own feelings, mental health. I don't know. We have a large swath of things that we talk about um but time particularly I I talk myself off a lot of a lot of ledges and it is continually amazing to me it rarely do I feel like it's long anymore but it does every once in a while I'm like oh oh my gosh it's only fill in the blank and that is a very fleeting feeling because most of the time I'm like talking myself from a it's February you're fine and then all of a sudden it's June and you're not fine. And then it's June again. And then it's Christmas. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I turned 40 this year. I think I'm fine with it. I don't know. Let's spin out a little bit. <laughs> I feel that you're definitely spinning. You're trying welcome. to pull you back into the calming feel of the present. I mean, the today's panel, as we mm-hmm. straddle the line, as we start to talk about it, actually, I didn't intend it, but is called Futurescape, a look at what's ahead in TV. And I do think there's a continual, you know, we we as a festival, we as programming, we as television are looking back, standing in the present and looking ahead constantly. And some of the future gazing is sometimes extremely overwhelming to mm-hmm. me on all fronts. And I will say that since this panel was recorded at season 11 of the festival in June, we're now in February. So eight months later if I do math correctly don't try to do weeks but yep. six plus two yeah yeah eight-ish months later tv's landscape is probably extremely different than it was well then. my question is how much of this has is either completely outdated has come true or has proven wrong I mean don't know pull out some tallies and start to figure it out because on this panel which is moderated by Daniel Feinberg of the Hollywood Reporter we have a VP of original programming from HBO, an EVP of scripted programming from E1, an SVP of original programming from Showtime, head of television for Kilter Films, which is Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy's company, head of scripted for Rooster Teeth. So we've got studios here. We've got platforms. We've got networks. We've got production companies, all trying to see what the future of television is going to be. And they're buying things, they're making things, they're releasing things, and what are they looking for? And as we have mergers and acquisitions and growth and platforms and things are picked up and then they're canceled, there is, I mean, my head is truly spinning, both as a viewer and as a television programmer, of of what is ahead. But, like, honestly, if I just even focus on the viewer part, like, forget the industry part, which they are going to talk about, and as the industry side, they are – maybe not in charge, but are participating in the decisions being made in television. As a viewer, I am still pretty fascinated with a very basic concept of, in my lifetime, as someone who I previously mentioned is turning 40 this year, in my lifetime, going from linear television, where I would say my earliest memory, I could set up a VHS to record things. So I, that's that's me at the beginning of technology and my television watching to the DVR and DVD and all the physical, the physical media and then the DVR to now all the streaming platforms. Like those are my touch points and really being very aware as cable packages were going away. And the 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 complaint that rose to the top was I'm paying for all these channels I don't want. Like, this is so expensive. I'm paying for all these channels I don't want. And the replacement, which took me until this year to cut the cord and have all the apps. I 
I do feel like it's broken <laughs> because <laughs> in all reality, I'm probably paying just as much to get all the subscriptions. I can't just turn it on. Like think of all the times you just turn the TV on and there's, there's TV there oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. for you to find, for you to discover. And so the other side of my brain is that's the physical parts of it. I'll try to make this a streamlined statement. It's not, but that's the physical part of it when all I want to do is discover something. Like, they're the things you know you want to watch. They're the things that you're like, okay, Yellow Jackets is back. I'm going to find it on Showtime. And then there's, I turned on the TV and I saw in the middle, I mean, I'll, I'll stick to Showtime. It's how I watched Dexter. I was at your apartment mm -hmm. and your roommate was watching it. Oh, yeah. And I started watching Dexter in the middle of like, an episode of season like three, I want to say, and was like, none of the marketing got to me. None of, you know, a serial killer. Uh, uh, no, not, not interested, not interested. We're in season three. And I was like, this is good. And I ended up then finding it wherever I could, which was probably a version of streaming at that point and watching all of it and catching up. And then naming my dog after it. And I, <laughs> like it is interesting. I mean, I discovered so many shows. Some of my favorite shows by just starting in the middle of a season in a random year, in a random episode, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And then at that point you couldn't go back and watch. You just had to keep going forward. And then fortunately if TV you look DVD. at some fortunate Yeah, and then TV on DVD came so you could eventually go back and be like, oh, these were the first few episodes. Yeah. But there was very, very few shows when we were growing up and even into our late teens, 20s, that we knew to, like, start. Yeah. But something was premiering, and I knew to sit down and watch the pilot. Honestly, the first show I can remember doing that for, funny enough, was Dawson's Creek. Mm. Because I was already watching WB shows. Right. And so they were marketing this new show to me. And so I remember when it premiered, because it was mid-season, of sitting down and actually watching that pilot. And So that you discovered may, it, but you discovered it at the beginning. Yes. And that may, as I'm thinking, may have been the first pilot that I watched. Oh, that would be big to be able yeah, to say. I, think I don't that know that, that I, I could never tell you what that is It me. wasn't Buffy, because I started somewhere in the middle of season, maybe even season two of Buffy, and then was able to go back and many times watch season one um I'm gonna think about this for a yeah. little bit but that may have been yeah. like the first show that I actually watched the pilot and then watched because I think through. that's the problem now if they're the shows that you know are happening and obviously that's what most networks and studios want you that's what marketing and PR is like oh the show's coming back or coming up and not even set your DVRs now find us watch it their home screens are telling you you know the last of us is available like start watching it but in all reality, if you don't know you're looking for something and it's not on the home screen, whether it's Netflix or Amazon Prime or honestly, I probably discover the most stuff on HBO Max, but I can't find something that I don't know I'm looking for. Yeah. And that is missing. And that is why I think it is broken. And I hope they fix it. And I don't know how to fix it. And I don't know who broke it. But I'm. We guessing, all broke it. Yeah. And but, then they, in order to fix it, swung the pendulum way too far the other direction. Yeah. And now, yeah, I don't know. I feel like there's going to be a part two of this conversation at this year's festival. Um, and I'm going to work to do it because that's what we're doing right now is programming things. I don't know if it's going to be all these same people, but I would like to hear from some folks on how we're going to fix this. You know, we're, we're real big on what's the problem. Yep. What's the goal? Yep. I'm going to set them in a room. <laughs> like <laughs> a like, writer's the room. problem. I love this. Yeah. And like, I want you guys to come up with some tangible solutions on how to fix this for me. Yep. Great. Um, I will say as a side note, talked about it last week, but the discover page of the ATX TV website will monthly suggest TV shows for you that you may or may not be watching that hopefully will help you literally do that discover a show you didn't know about right now or just most recently through another podcast i just watched rogue heroes on mgm plus none of those words mean anything yeah to so me. now there's not epics there's mgm plus it's also owned by amazon so wait for it to get absorbed i don't know okay, um but rogue heroes is stephen knight's who did peaky blinders new show and it's six episodes 
set in North Africa during Nazis in 1941 and the war. And Dominic West is in it a little bit. Jack O'Connell. It's a real fun group. Uh, the guy, I'm going to forget his name. He's in sex education. Um, the kid? No. The one who's gay. The, oh, yeah. The, yeah. That's the doctor, the New Yorker who? No. The other one. <laughs> Whose dad's terrible. Oh, yes. I don't Adam. watch the show well enough. Adam. But Adam. It is Adam. That is it. We got there. We got there. It is Adam. Adam is Sterling in Rogue Heroes. Anyway, discovered it on a podcast. It's now on our Discover page. Other people should discover it. Free trial of MGM Plus for seven days. I watched it in seven days. I don't know that I could do that, but actually, oh, okay. And then we're going to hand it off. The way I watched this show was I thought I had epics. Epics did technically still exist when I started this. And so there was an Epics app on my Apple TV. So I heard about it and I was like, I'm going to watch it. Thought I still had Epics, logged into Epics, watched the first episode. Then episode two, they're like, you don't have Epics. You yeah, just got to watch mm-hmm. the first episode. So I was like, damn it. And then I realized it was on MGM Plus and I knew that Amazon owned MGM Plus And I thought maybe Amazon, like Freebie, has the episodes on Amazon too. Like they share the licensing. So I went to Amazon. I watched episode two and I was like, great, I've solved this. Actually, I thought even if I, if they're not there, maybe I can just buy the episodes. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes yep. happens on Amazon, but yep. nowhere else. So I watched episode two on Amazon. Then I went to watch episode three, cut me off. <laughs> so on episode three, I signed up for MGM plus and I only watched the last four in my free trial week. This whole conversation (laughs) has been such a journey from where we started to where we ended up that I think also just shows the current headspace that we may be in, honestly, that you may be in, because I feel like I've been taken for a ride (laughs) in the past however many minutes. So good to know where we are. We don't know where to watch these shows and it will take you on a journey. I watched six episodes of this show on three different platforms. That's actually, I feel like, sums up the TV landscape at the moment. There you go. So with that, please enjoy Futurescape, a look at what's ahead in television. We don't know. Uh, Moderated by Daniel Feinberg of The Hollywood Reporter. South by Southwest is the world's largest gathering of creative professionals from the tech, film, television, and music industries. The event returns this March with an all-new lineup of talent waiting to be discovered. Their Film and TV Festival offers a first look at some of the year's biggest blockbuster hits and innovative works by new filmmaking talent. For nine days in March, you'll have the chance to see hundreds of exclusive premieres and venues all across Austin. The program features provocative dramas, documentaries, comedies, and genre standouts from all around the globe. Attendees will also have the opportunity to connect with a wide array of industry experts in their conference and mentor sessions. Learn how to join us and them for unparalleled discovery, learning, and networking at sxsw.com slash attend. So I want to start with the most general and broad question just to ease us into this, but so that everyone out here knows who you guys are and what you do, give us all the log lines for your job. And you can use my microphone. If okay. you want. Uh, I work in drama series at HBO, um, and we do both development and current programming. So we, you know, I help decide what we're going to buy. We're in pitches with writers, and then from there, the ones that we want to move forward with, we develop, and some of them make it to series, and we stay with our shows through the run of series, hopefully. Me too. Oh well, no, all all of you, not. <laughs> Not just one of you. I mean, you're, you're going to get a lot of the same answer. Um, I'm Jacqueline Cesario. I'm EVP of Scripted Television at Entertainment One. We're an independent studio. Uh, so likewise, uh, we develop and produce television for networks. On similar lines. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jesse Dikovicki. Hello, everyone. I work at Showtime. Very similar job to Kara. Um, the only difference would be I work across comedy, drama and unscripted programming at the network, but kind of see it all from pitch all the way through to make sure it gets to audiences. And I'm Athena Wickham. I'm more on the producerial end. I work at Kilter Films. Um, we, I'm lucky enough to work with Kara all the time on Westworld have for many, many years. And um, we have current programming going on at Amazon and uh, basically same thing from pitching it to the network 
to producing it to staffing it all the way through to post. Yeah. So uh, I'm Dan Shore. I work for Rooster Teeth Studios. Uh, it's the studio, uh, essentially a production company offshoot of Rooster Teeth, the uh, company. More so on the producer side. Uh, also sort of touch most of our businesses in the animation space. Um, so that includes everything from family, comedy, genre, um, horror, and everything in between. We do it all. And keeping things general and easing us into this, and this is an even bigger question, it's 2022. How do you guys watch TV? Do you guys watch things live? Does anyone watch TV live? <laughs> do you find yourself mostly watching on your computer? What is your standard means of watching TV? Uh, honestly, I watch most TV on my computer, much to the um, horror, horror of my husband. Uh, uh, but on TV sometimes for stuff I really love. Yeah, I mean, I'm old school. We have a big flat screen TV and we watch it all. And there are some that we watch appointment viewing once a week. There's some we binge. It really kind of depends on the show. Um, but we try and watch a, a few episodes of literally almost everything on TV. <laughs> yeah, that's impressive. <laughs> uh, TV's a, a community experience for me. I don't watch a ton of it, but when I do, I'm inviting friends over, I watch with my husband, it's something I want to share. So like Jacqueline, a little old school in that I want to see it on a big screen in some way and enjoy the experience wholly. Yeah, I mean, same way, I'm a little old school with my husband when I'm home, definitely on the, the TV, streaming every platform imaginable. Um, I find myself, because I work in such mainly, I mean, only drama, and it's pretty intense drama at times, I only watch comedy, mainly, or there has to be comedic bent to it, because I can't take anything else. I really can't, I can't do it anymore. Um, and so, but then when I'm traveling, I travel a lot, I'm on a laptop, just watching whatever's there. It's interesting, similar to, to, to you, I'm looking for a lot of the TV I watch as a reprieve from the amount of that we're generating. So for me, it's like, you know, the NBA playoffs, which is live appointment viewing. Uh, and, and so in turn, yeah, like on the couch TV, traditionalist. And I don't know if you guys are, any of you going to have an answer to this one, but I want to ask it anyway, because it's sort of addressing the elephant that isn't in the room. We have a lot of cable people, people who've worked in streaming, production people, Broadcast television, 2022. Is there anything to talk about? Is it a, is it a non-conversation at this point? Well, I'll talk about it. Okay. Because <laughs> um, I might be the only one that works somewhere that is doing broadcast television. So, um, you know, at Entertainment One, we have The Rookie on the air right now, um, which is going into Thank you. Thank you. Um, Nathan Fillion fans. Um, and, uh, and that's been you know, a great success for us and a, and a great experience. And I don't know if you've seen, but that's actually, we're, we're doing a spin-off now with Niecy Nash, and it's gonna be the rookie feds. So we're really proud of that. You know, we built something um, that is its own IP that we've now spun off. And, um, and it's still really good business. You know, it's good business internationally. So um, yeah, we're def it's definitely something that we're, we're investing in. Does anyone else have? Thoughts on that? Do you guys watch any broadcast television at this point? No, for sure. I mean, look, I mean, on the animation side, it's, you know, you getting on Fox, I think, continues to be sort of one of the benchmarks that you look for. So, I mean, we're always looking to try to position projects that can have that, you know, uh, cross appeal. I mean, I love Bob's Burgers. I watched that <laughs> end, of the, end of damn time. I went to the movie last weekend. I mean, I'm, that's, that's my style. Did you see Top Gun? I did. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I hope we all, I hope we all did. I hope we all did. We all? Okay, so Top Gun brings up a question. Last weekend, all the things that people were talking about, it seemed as if they were retro. It seemed as if they were nostalgia. People were talking about Top Gun. They were talking about Kate Bush. Does that reflect a sort of backward-looking trend in your mind? Does it reflect a desire or need for things to fit into kind of IP brand corners or is it just was it just a strange week and we should all feel very grateful that people were talking about entertainment at all this probably doesn't answer your question so I apologize so somebody <laughs> else should but I do think I'm sure you guys would agree IP does still rule the roost in our business um, people feel safer with it um, I know for us when you're trying to sell something if you can say it's a book or a video game or whatever it's a much easier sell to a streamer and even to an audience honestly um, and it helps with marketing there's like a brand recognition so that's not what your question was but it definitely is a big deal IP I, oh sorry no, no, go for it. I was I'm just gonna chime in because 
two shows I'm actively working on now and that I'm, I'm very proud of that we developed from completely original ideas was Yellow Jackets at, at Showtime and, uh, and Cruel Summer on Freeform and Hulu. And both of those were not based on anything, you know, complete vision from the creator. Um, although you would think it could be based, people would always ask us, was that based on a true story or was that based on a book? Um, so I, I totally agree. And then to your question about nostalgia though, for those two personally, I was <laughs> nostalgic for the 90s. Uh, and uh, and I think a lot of people are just, you know, nostalgic for a bit of a simpler time. You know, I think the world is so crazy. People want to escape a bit. So, and I think even when I was watching Top Gun, I thought the same thing. I'm like, this is so ridiculous and I love it. <laughs> I think it depends on where you are and who your audience is, what your brand is, and, you know, who you're programming for. I think a lot of what we think about at Showtime is how to balance that. You know, we are definitely interested in IP. But as you said, you know, those originals are, we're invested in creating shows by new voices as well. And you really have to just have breadth in a brand to attract a curated audience. And that's what we rely on partners like pretty much everyone here. Mm -hmm. We work together in some way or are looking to work together in other ways. But you know, it, it really is about understanding, you know, for Showtime, we're part of a larger Paramount ecosystem. There's Paramount Plus, where IP is the game, mm -hmm. where you guys know as sellers, I mean, that's safe, that's what they're looking for, there's a yeah. built-in audience there, that's exactly what they want. Mm -hmm. So when we're in the premium space, we're really looking to differentiate ourselves and make sure that you know, we can stand apart from that. So IP is important, yes, but those new voices that are coming into the game are just as important to invest in as well. Is there any concern about IP fatigue? Sure, but I, I think there's IP sometimes just presents a really good creative opportunity. We're, we're working on a project that's based on a toy line that's more geared for kids, and we're going to use that, you know, as a satirical exploration of what a Saturday morning cartoon would look like for adults. So sometimes they just provide a really awesome organic story prompt, and that yes, there's you know recognition and familiarity, but they oftentimes they present a really good creative opportunity. So that's why I think we continue to utilize it, not just because people want it, but it's a good creative prompt. Yeah, and, I, and I'll just mention, you know, E1 is the, is the studio, the creative studio for Hasbro. And so obviously we have a ton of IP there. Um, and we're working on a Dungeons and Dragons television series right now. Um, and also a film that comes out with Paramount next year. So I think it's also about making sure not to pick over IP that's been picked over so many times before, but what's the new IP? Um, and so really, we're really proud of the fact that you know, there hasn't been a Dungeons and Dragons movie. And, uh, and so yeah, that could be a whole new universe. And then how about the process of kind of franchising the things that are original? Because you mentioned The Rookie, a success, and so immediately you have to go into, okay, what can we do to basically use, turn The Rookie into a branded title? So how do, you, how do you balance that when suddenly you have something that was original and then you're trying to spin that off? I mean, it was just such a clear concept, right? It's like when you have, it's like what is the twist, right? This was about someone in their 40s trying to make a change, right? Someone who wanted to pivot. So we're, you know, Nathan Fillion being a cop is very different to the version of Niecy Nash being an FBI agent. So it's, I think it's just, you know, um, just, I like to always say, don't underestimate your audience, you know? And, and also, I think finding talent, I mean, we're so proud of Yellow Jackets. I feel like that show without that cast would have been a very different show. Um, so I, I'm not sure what your question was at this point. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's about keeping casting fresh, keeping the writing fresh, keeping the twist fresh, and just, you know, um, a lot of people, I think, underestimate, you know, broadcast television because, you know, they think, oh, it's broadcast, you know? But actually, broadcast television is very hard, you know? And it's very hard to sustain. Um, so I have respect for it. I, I got my, you know, um, I got my start working on Designated Survivor. That was the first thing I did as a, as a executive. So I know it's challenging. <laughs> and I think there always has to be, uh, the question we ask ourselves is, is there a reason for doing this, for being, you know? And we had talked for years and years about rebooting Dexter. It was just such an iconic piece of IP and franchise for our company. And, you know, just, just couldn't get there. You know, what's the right way in? You know, does it make sense now? And then when things started to fall into place, when we understood, you know, fans were clamoring for, you know, the ending that that show really deserved. And Michael C. Hall, our lead actor on that show, 
really had come around to wanting to re-explore the character in a much more psyche-driven way than he had before, you know, it, it starts to add up. You start to be able to justify this does make sense, we should go down this road, and you know, that's a great success. That was the biggest launch that Showtime had in, I think, ever. And you know, that really came from existing IP, taking advantage of a new take into it. But you don't go around looking at every successful show you have and thinking, my god, let's reboot them all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess I, I would say, um, kind of similar to to what you're saying, I think um, the team that I'm on at HBO, we're in a unique position where, um, you know, we, we don't have to sell, and so you can be very selective about what um, works and let the creative sort of drive everything else. So um, we have developed, you know, obviously Westworld is a piece of an IP, for example, but I would say it's a real remix of the original and has, after season one, total departure. So um, it, ha you know, it helps, but that show, you know, was really about the team that brought it to us and the pitch on, you know, a reversal of what the original concept from the movie was and feeling like there was um, a thematic underbelly that we wanted to explore regardless of the IP. Well, you guys at HBO had a sort of unique position where you were determined, for example, to make a Game of Thrones spinoff, and that was sort of, that was the mandate. But then you had more of a bake-off process in order to make it happen. So how were you able to balance, well, we need to capitalize while people still want a Game of Thrones spinoff, but we don't want to do it just for the sake of that? Yeah, I mean, it, it was, it's tricky, um, and uh, we developed a lot of ideas, we are still developing a lot of ideas, and I think um, we're really excited about the one that um, it will air later this summer. Um, but we don't feel the need to make another one unless it feels uh, really creatively exciting to us. And I think, you know, uh, that's my job at least. So, I, you know, and that's what, on the team that I'm on, that's what we're told to focus on, and, and luckily I think that um, the business side has supported that so far. I want to talk a little on the business side. Last year, virtually, I did a panel that was basically about how the industry was changed by 2020 and how COVID in particular shifted the industry. And I'm curious, as we stand here in 2022, where things stand in terms of whether we've kind of hit whatever the new normal happens to be in terms of how COVID and COVID protocols are impacting budgets, production times, all of those rather substantial things that, <laughs> that impact the pipeline of television coming to our TVs. Not that anyone is worried about a lack of television, but where do we stand now in terms of what basically 2022 did in terms of budget and the ability to tell stories on television? Well, as someone who had to get her butt back on a set before there was a, a vaccine, um, and I think there was a little bit of like a separation there for a while in the, in the industry where if you're in the production world, it's like, okay, get back to work, but a lot of other people still weren't even in offices. Um, so I will say the studios were amazing. HBO was incredible, being so supportive. I can just speak to that with their COVID budget. It is a separate budget because it has to be. Um, at one point, it was a rather large percentage of your episodic budget that would be put on top of it because of the PPE involved, the constant testing that we were doing to keep everyone safe. Um, it, it just, and you have to add days to make sure that there's more time to implement, you know, um, the basic production structure in a day just took much longer. And if you have a studio like an HBO who are completely supportive, you can do it, you know, but it does take money for sure. And now we're in a place, I will say, again, getting back into production where those COVID budgets are going down because there's PPE, but it's not as intense as it once was, hopefully, knock on wood. Um, I think some of the structure for how we test is also kind of, is still regulated, but it's much less. At one point I was testing five times a week for my crew and cast, and the cast would be tested every single morning so they could feel safe taking, because they're the ones obviously who are maskless. Um, so that's a lot and it's expensive too. <laughs> so I think I see that going down. I think we all do, right? Mm -hmm. I know studios want to keep everyone safe as do producers, but you also want to see the 
money going towards a screen and not necessarily towards, you know, five times a week testing if it's not necessary, especially if people are vaccinated, which is a part of, that's a whole other thing to talk about. But, um, so yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but it is definitely an ever-changing week-to-week conversation and it's tricky, for sure. Good answer to my question. Who, el who else has an answer along those lines? Well, well, I'd just say, you know, we're, we're not out of it. Uh, we're still in it. I think we have developed efficiencies um, in terms of just having to have navigated this yeah. for a couple years now. You know what to expect. You know what the delays will be. I think there, there's a lot more comfort and understanding. There was a big rallying two years ago around, you know, save the industry. Make sure we can get back into production. And there were a lot of really smart minds you know, very focused on finding ways and setting up protocols and working with guilds so that we could continue to make TV shows. Because on the other side, what we were seeing were for distributors, audiences were desperate for new material. And some of us had, you know, our best years in terms of viewership um, with new audiences coming to the network. So, you know, it's, it is something we'll continue to navigate. And if you're a global company um, like Paramount, you know, it, it could be a different navigation in different territories. The international space is still dealing with, you know, very significant cases, and it's very difficult. We're producing, Showtime produces Halo for Paramount Plus, um, the streaming service, and, you know, that's a very different navigation than when you make television and set your protocols within the United States. So there are hats off to the amazing production people and teams that have figured all of this out but it's as the thing is that it's it's an ongoing conversation for sure have we started seeing any of the ripples or ramifications from the recent wave of inflation is that something that's hitting you guys yet yeah i mean i mean it's getting better now but my construction budget woo was through the roof <laughs> last year um, now, I will say in a different, um, not to get to the nitty gritty, I'm sure this is going to bore you guys, but um, the effects, funny enough, has been hit by that in a way that I can't, it's so hard because it's not tangible, but um, it now because two things, there's a pipeline issue where everyone is busy because of the crazy amount of <laughs> uh, material out there, and also just kind of getting people, different vendors to have enough people in place to work for you, and it's not even about money, it's about time, and pop so it's a, inflation actually has to do with that. It's been amazing, because it's all over the world, because, you know, VFX, we farm out to India, we farm out everywhere mm -hmm. in Korea, and so it's just been, it's been amazing, in the bad way, I should say. <laughs> I will say, especially yeah. right now, VFX, I'm sure you guys are all feeling that. It's, it's hurting, big time. When does that start being a determining factor on what gets greenlit? When do you start saying, okay, we need to do less of the VFX. We need to, we need to start going more into half-hour territory. We need to, maybe Quibi was right all along and everything needs to be. <laughs> I'm so happy you can still get a laugh out of Quibi. <laughs> when does it begin to shape what people are actually getting greenlit because the sticker shock is too great? I think it's more of a process conversation instead. You know, what we've been doing is just bringing our showrunners and bringing our teams in much earlier into the development process, you know, even before something gets greenlit because we're aware, you know, if, if this is a show that needs, that's set internationally and needs to be shot in a couple different locations, you know, the dollar's really strong right now, but labor's more expensive overseas. So we, that may cancel each other out. So it's about, I think it's really about, or at least our approach has been educating our partners, making sure that we're working with excellent studios like E1 and other partners who really have smart infrastructure in the right places in order to do that. But from my perspective, if it's a great piece of content, we're gonna figure out a way to make it. And it really doesn't impact too deeply the conversation about green lighting today. Carol? I agree. <laughs> when does it, though, become a question of can we have one fewer dragon? Uh, can we do can we do one more 22-minute drama with or comedy with no stars necessarily that maybe the critics will like but won't be watched by 25 million people because it'll just keep things on air? I don't think it would ever. I don't think it would. I you know I think it's a ch it's a challenge um, for sure. Uh, I work on a bunch of shows with a lot of VFX and. It's challenging, but um, you know, I, 
I honestly think if it was ever a point where you're going to lose something, it would be a joint decision with the showrunners because you just would run up against a wall and not be able to do it. But it would never be like us saying we're not doing that. And and I and I think that includes, by the way, like, yeah, I mean, paying costs for rushing stuff. I mean, if it's important to the show, I, I don't I don't really see denying the show that. I was just going to say there. What has been pretty cool is at least we've seen a crop of like super low budget shows come up to kind of offset the fact that you know taste has gone to scope and scale on so many especially in the premium space so many of our shows it's really cool to see like super indie creators come in and say i can make this for x amount of money please give me a tv show and like sometimes you're like yeah okay this is great let's do that and you know we had a super successful example of that um, with a comedy that we have airing soon called Flatbush Misdemeanors, and it's two guys that made a couple webs, web series episodes and just have a great voice and were able to replicate a slightly bigger version of that process. And it was, you know, just enough. The creative was really good. They, they were at the right point in their career where they are about to take off interesting comedians who who haven't gotten to that scale where they can demand the world from us, but really invested in telling their stories on screen. And you know that's been really lovely to see that small micro-budget shows can play in the same way at a premium network as you know as a show like Billions, which does not cost billions of dollars, but is up there. <laughs> and, and I just want to add, I mean, we all feel it, right? We all feel inflation, like, you know, um, but at the end of the day, when a studio and a network decide to make a show, I think we all, again, we know every show is a little miracle, <laughs> you know, and to get a show made is really challenging, not to mention over the last two years, but when you make the decision to be like, okay, we're doing it, we're not gonna skimp on a special effect. You know, at that point, it's, you know, and it's had to happen at times because you just ran out of time and it hurts your soul a little bit when you're like, oh, that effect could have been better. So again, we care so deeply and because we respect you guys and we respect the audience and, you know, at the end of the day, we want people to watch the show and love the show. So um, we know it's really competitive and, you know, it's going to cost more money, and you. But it's about where you put the money, right? You, so that's the bigger question, right? So, um, if you're going to spend it on that, where can we save, right? Um, so it's the constant puzzle and the pleasure of making television. And I, I kid about Quibi because it's funny, um, <laughs> but my feeling about Quibi the whole time was this was something that was not necessarily, in the big picture sense, a bad idea. It just was either the wrong timing or bad execution or whatever. I'm curious, from your perspectives, whose responsibility is it, who is it incumbent upon to think outside of the box formally in that respect? And this could be for you, Dan, because I know that Rooster Teeth has done a lot of different formats. So are we at a point where people need to be figuring out, you know, is the half hour drama a thing we need to be doing? Is the 15 minute comedy a thing we need to be doing? How do we get out of the boxes that TV has been in for all this time? I mean, I think we start to see it. I mean, we, you know, we were talking backstage about the, you know, season finale of Severance. You know, I think some shows, Mandalorian, you know, the first season, if you earn a certain level of credibility, you can sort of escape a traditional, every show shoots X amount of days. For Rooster Teeth, it's different because, you know, our company, part of our company really is, you know, sort of our dot-com internet focused. On the studio side, we're really focused on, you know, animation. And as much as there's somewhat of an hour-long animation market, you start to see it with Bad Match and Invincible. For the most part, animation production doesn't support that kind of flexibility. You kind of, you sort of have to sort of set up to 22 or, or, or not. But I think you're starting to see some shows realize that they just, uh, the best version of this episode doesn't need to hit a certain runtime. It needs to hit a certain level of emotional beats. And that's where I think we're going to start to see more and more flexibility. Anyone else have thoughts on that? I mean, it's, a che it's what you're saying, but it's a cheesy thing for me to say, so I apologize. He said it much better. But um, I think it's, again, I'm so sorry for saying this out loud, but I think, it's <laughs> I think it honestly is what's the story you're trying to tell and how... What is it? It'll tell you organically mm -hmm. what shape it needs to take. I think maybe with Quibi, and again, I agree with you, thank God, they tried something different. But I think maybe they're trying to fit 
the content into a box that it wasn't supposed to fit into instead of letting it, again, I hate it when executives like me use this word, but let it grow organically. <laughs> um, and I, I honestly do think you have a story and characters and you honestly just have in your gut, you know, what form it's supposed to take. It's just a weird intuition, right? And especially if you have amazing writers, they can tell you right off the bat, but that's all. Yeah, I mean, it, it, used, it used to be shocking. I've been on the buying side for most of my career, and it used to be shocking when, you know, seven, ten years ago, a creator would come in and said, like, I want to do a half-hour drama. You know, you, there was a moment where, you know, our distribution deals are so specific about their needs or, um, or audiences expected something in a certain way you know, that that was just how it's done. I think what's been lovely is that creators feel more and more empowered to tell their stories how they want to tell them these days. And because of that, us, we distributors get the opportunity just to give them the platform and be able to do that. I mean, we are launching Spotlights, which, which is a new form of program that just are shorts that great young, oftentimes BIPOC uh, creators and filmmakers have made that could be very different lengths of times, but just are you know an expression of something really cool and really interesting that are curated there, and we're putting that up on our platform. I mean, mm -hmm. there's, there's really a ton of opportunity these days, and that's just been an evolution, I think, of storytelling creative and the ability for a lot of these larger companies now to be much more flexible as we get into a streaming environment. And then, and then I'll just mention just, um, I mean, the international is still a really big component of this, right? So, and I know that, you know, HBO, Showtime, you guys all, you know, retain international. We sell international on, uh, you know, several of our shows. And even if we would want to be more flexible or, or bend the rules, we still depend on some of the international buyers who still want the traditional half hour and the traditional one hour. So that sometimes dictates, you know, how much freedom you have. Well, going off of what Jesse said, if you if you talk to the kids, um, <laughs> I don't know who they represent. If they're in, if they're in here, feel free to raise your hand uh, about what they watch on TV. You're going to hear so many answers that basically revolve around. Well, mostly I watch TikTok, or mostly I watch YouTube videos. When you're still a more of a legacy media brand, how do you keep up with that? Because there's a whole young audience that's just going to keep up their lives being like thinking, okay, entertainment is three minutes at a time, entertainment is five minutes on my computer, et cetera. How do you convince them that they need to watch? I mean, obviously, if they watched a 98-minute episode of Stranger Things last weekend, so they do have flexibility. I'm not <laughs> saying they don't. But, but how do you keep up with the way a younger generation is watching TV? I mean, I'll just bring up because it's part of the reason why I was drawn to Cruel Summer is because I was feeling fatigue watching one-hour dramas. I'm like, oh, so long, right? I can't, I, my own ADD was getting in the way, right? And so I thought, if I have this problem, I can't even imagine. And my niece and nephew, like, they, they were like, we don't watch TV, we don't watch TV. And so I'm like, okay. And then, you know, we get this spec script for Cruel Summer, and I'm like, I don't, none of these scenes are actually building, you know, um, I, you're not answering any questions in this one episode, you know, but I'm so engaged in like all these little vignettes and these moments and I was like, I'm, I'm in, I'm hooked. And so I was so proud that my niece and nephew loved the show. Um, and, uh, and so I, I do think, I, I think you have to be mindful of it, um, but at the end of the day, you guys all watched Westworld, you know what I mean? Like, people are watching Yellow Jackets, so, um, and young people are watching, right? Um, so I think it's, again, it's m much harder to get their attention, um, but they still, they still show up. Look at Stranger Things was the perfect example of that. Who else has an answer for that one? I mean, you have to engage them. I, I, you have to get out there. We've got tons of people, bigger teams than the programming team, out there figuring out how to create buzz around the show, and Yellow Jackets is a perfect example of a show that just continued to grow and grow and grow in terms of awareness. Um, and part of that was a programming strategy. I mean, part of that was the and decision marketing. was made. Marketing, of course. Marketing, <laughs> publicity, for sure. People who are nimble, able to get in, who, who 
can understand what the kids are saying in ways that I can't, and, and whose job it is to translate that to all of us. But you know, in, in truth, a big part of that is, is the awareness push. And like Yellow Jackets was a great example because that show, and a lot of Showtime strategy, that show dropped week by week. And the conversation started growing week by week. It became an anticipated series to understand what happened to these girls, what's gonna happen next week, who are the big bads in that show. And I think that's you know something that we all took um, strategically to heart, which is you know there's this conversation in the industry right now around binge viewing and whether that is um, a beneficial approach to for certain types of programming or whether a week by week or chunk by chunk drop makes more sense for a certain type of programming. Yellow Jackets for us really helped clarify that if we allow audiences to wait, the conversation on social, the conversation in community building grows and grows on a weekly basis. And, and that's something we're looking to extend for the rest of our programming. Sure, because you can't, sorry. I was just saying, because you can't like talk to your friends if something gets dropped all at once, because like, oh, you're in episode four, I'm on five, okay, let's talk mm -hmm. next. So you can't, you can't do it, it's just not possible, that community building, so I totally agree. Yeah. I'm a big advocate Agreed. of weekly. Well, I agree too. Um, same, same, same. Good answer. Um, but I was also gonna say, just about your initial question, you know, I don't work on Euphoria, for example, but um, I don't, you know, my colleagues who do, and our team all kind of read stuff together before we green light, that's our, our process. Like when we were making that show, no one, honestly, I, I don't think we were strategically thinking like we need like people who would be on TikTok otherwise to like be watching this. I mean, I, I think we made a conscious decision that we wanted to make a show about younger people in a very adult way. Um, and I think that we believed in Sam Levinson and his vision and um, it's really hard, I think, to make programming um, for like you're you're saying like we need to make it for that audience when you yourself don't believe in it for one reason or another like and I think Euphoria, you know Sam is a brilliant writer and director he really has something to say that resonated for one reason or another with the majority of our team and it shows that kind of I think have real authorship in that way tend to find an audience because they're authentic to someone and. Um, you know, whether or not that's an authentic high school experience is terrifying, I have no idea. Um, but, I, you know, that shows a total smash with like people that are kind of more social media generation people. I, and I think that if you tried to reverse engineer it, you wouldn't have that in the same way. It'd be, it'd be difficult to achieve it in the same way. I mean, that's such a good point, the, the reverse engineering aspect of it, because yes, you can have a hit with Euphoria or you can have a hit with Yellow Jackets, but then you can't instantly go, okay, what is our next Yellow Jackets? You have to go, what is our next word of mouth hit? How do you how do you do that? Or is it just really throwing darts against a wall and sometimes they do stick and you go, yay, okay. Basically, I just don't think can do it. Like, look at, I mean, we talk about this all the time. What replaced Sopranos was Game of Thrones. What replaced Game of Thrones was Succession. Like, they are not alike. In some ways, they are. In some ways, they're all family stories. And, um, but you couldn't say what is the next Game of Thrones. Even with the prequel, it's like you, it, it's, because um, if you try to just redo it, it will never be, it will pale in comparison. So you gotta just find the next thing that you believe in the creator for. So Jackie and Jesse, how are you gonna find the next Yellow Jackets? <laughs> I mean, culture changes really quickly. So, you know, you try to be a boys soccer team. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, so you know, it's it's really less about you know I think trying to chase what's happening in our culture. At least that's the way I think about it. And it's much more about you know what's your gut? Does this resonate with you? Is this something that you'd be willing to share with your friend or colleague or other person about? And you know, my God, I hope the conversation starts with something you know intelligent, hopefully, and 
you know, and that the creator has something to say, but I mean, it's, it's so difficult to try, and because just the production and development process takes so long, by the time you think you have the spot on of the moment story, you know, you're two years out and you're so behind the time. So I, it's definitely a piece of it, but at the same time, it, it's, it's all about gut these days. Personally, this is why I watch so much TV. And like, I, I'm, an, I'm a fan of television. Like, I always have been, right? So what all we have is our own taste, right? And, you know, we all like a wide variety of shows, right? I watch a lot of comedies, even though I don't really develop comedies, right? Um, but I always like to look at what's not on TV, right? You know, and, and what's missing, what's the hole, what's the need? And it's never like, oh, I'm going to do a show about this, but it's just you know, something that feels fresh, that feels like, oh, that I haven't seen that version of a story, that tone. I mean, Yellow Jackets, we're so proud of that tone, which is just so weird and fucked up. <laughs> and like, you know, um, yeah, and I mean, I really wanted to tell a story about, you know, complicated women who do bad things, you know, um, but you still root for them and they're still believable and doesn't make them any less feminine, you know, um, so that was something I was really drawn to. So I think it's uh, for every, we are just so lucky to do what we do. And at the end of the day, we try and make shows that we would want to watch. And when an audience responds, like that's just the biggest blessing, but it's kind of not to your point. We can't really reverse engineer it. Well, following up on your point, your gut is always only going to be your gut. So do each of you have an example of, of a show either that you made or that you watched where you watched it, your gut told you, okay, this is the next thing, and it just wasn't? <laughs> Quibby. <laughs> well played. Carol, would you like Mike? No. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got an answer to that I one? This is a trap, though, because then, like, we don't, you can't. Yeah, we talked about these backstage. And, you know, <laughs> that was a trap. It can just be a show that you love that you still, to this day, can't fathom why it just didn't hit. Because everyone's got one of those. Or everyone does not have one of those. <laughs> well, I used to work at Marvel, so the NDA, unfortunately, <laughs> is limiting for this conversation. I mean, I, I'm sure, I, I feel like when you... For me, when I've worked on a TV show and I've loved it and I've been like really passionate about it, I, I'm not saying it's like a huge hit, but it works on some level. When I, from like honestly the pilot stage, I've been like, oh God, and everyone else gets excited. <laughs> but like in your heart, you just know it's not something you believe in, it never works. And it's, it's just not worth the time, honestly. I mean, I used to say when I did a lot of broadcast, I used to say like, <laughs> People get so excited because you know you get a pilot picked up and then the pilot goes to series. This is a terrible, I'm not gonna name your names, but I would think, I, I hope to God we don't go to series because it's so hard to work on a series that you love. It's so hard. I know that sounds like what was me, but it's just, it's a lot of freaking work, right? And you're all these, all these people are trying to make everyone happy and collaborate together and, and just like, you know, keep the morale up. If you are working on something you don't believe in creatively, it is horrible. It is just terrible, and it's just not worth it, and it never works out. To your, what you're asking that question, I've never had it work out when I thought it should have worked <coughs> out, personally. I've never been surprised. That's just me. <laughs> Sorry. So then what do you do with your gut, then, in that case? I mean, you know, you're working, at the time I was much younger, and you work in a company, and you, and you, you, you know, take the oar, and you row with everybody else, and you work your hardest, but in your gut, you know, uh, this isn't, this isn't going to work. I mean, I don't believe in it. I don't think the writer necessarily believes in it, but they think the network wants this, and that's the worst way to go into it, and it never works. I've never seen it work that way. I mean, it's so cynical, I know, but it just it has never. And it's always the times when you love it. And again, like I said, maybe it's not the biggest smash hit, but it'll be on the air for four or five years, and it has an amazing like, niche audience, and that's the best. Like, I worked on a show called Fringe, which was not a huge success. <laughs> Do you know what room you're in? Come on. Like, and that was a long time. But I, and it was like my first like real show that I worked on, and I loved it. And again, I, I mean, maybe ten people watched. It. I have no idea. But it was on the air for like five years. But like I loved it so much. And it was such a weird little show on Fox. But that's the kind of thing you think, okay, if I love it, I, somebody else has to love it as much as I do. Anyway. 
Okay, I'm going to go back to a weird one. I have no involvement with the show, but I don't even know if it was a huge hit, but I loved Happy Endings. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, this is the next Friends, right? And I was shocked that guy came. This is why I was asking you guys a question. It wasn't to trap you. It was, I, it was because I knew that in this room, anything that was the show that you lamented in your gut didn't make it or didn't blow up probably has 50 fans in this room. And even if they're the only fans, they're passionate fans. So anyone else got one now that they're emboldened by the applause of the crowd? <laughs> I'll say one of the first things I did at Showtime was a pilot. I, I was obsessed with UCB, the, the comedy troupe, and um, I loved this comedian, Rachel Bloom, who I just thought was like, the funniest person ever. And we made this comedy pilot, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It was too heady. It was, too, it was just too... Showtime! It was like we were digging in in all the wrong places instead of letting her just fucking sing and enjoy it all. And we ended up making the right decision to give it over to a sister and act work at CW where it had a very successful run. But that, that's where my gut just kept on telling me, I love this, that she is my favorite person, I need to do this. And thank God there was a collective experience uh, involved. We found the right home and the best thing for this person that you know, I really wanted to see succeed. How do you retrain your brain in that way? Because similarly along those lines, you guys developed at Showtime, Halo, then it moved over to Paramount Plus. Uh, Man Who Fell to Earth was developed at Paramount Plus, moved over to Showtime. How do you kind of get your mind around the idea there's the big brand and that's the thing, rather than we're part of a corporate ecosystem and something might be right for another thing, but it's a big company, so there's a home for it somewhere. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm still producing Halo for Paramount Plus, so fortunately, I've worked on that show for eight or nine years now, from the entire stages of IP and development all the way through to making this massive behemoth, and, <laughs> You know, so, so in terms of retraining our brain, I think the new step for me in this process was really listening to, we had developed it, you know, to be a way to get a bigger, broader audience to Showtime. And it turns out that was the perfect thing for Paramount Plus, the streaming <laughs> on it. So it's exactly what they needed. That's exactly what they should have had. And what was great in the, that entire process was it really clarified for us where does Showtime stand inside of this ecosystem. And you know we really need to be that really specific premium curated offering, you know that that does more psychological content. You know that really aims for thought-provoking types of conversation. And I think what we delivered to Paramount Plus with Halo was kind of the best of every world. It's got a ton of action. It's got a ton of scope. It's got a really interesting exploration of a super soldier um, dealing with identity for the first time. And I think that's a really great place for Paramount Plus to stay in and play in. Um, but I, I, I didn't feel, and I don't feel inside the company that I'm in, that restriction. If anything, it's very clarifying, like what our brands are, what we all need to be, and very happy to see that show succeed in the way it has on that network. And very grateful to have Man Who Felt Earth, because Chiwetel is incredible in that show, and it takes some wild swings, and it goes to some really interesting stylistic places, and that's been a great place for our network to live in as we try to attack, uh, attract more and more interesting types of talent coming to our network who are going to continue to make those swings, and we have a platform to be able to let them do that in a way that Paramount doesn't. Kara, how are you feeling along those lines with the HBO and HBO Max of it all? I would say the, the team I work on, um, which is the, the one that airs linearly um, once a week, all of our shows, uh, has not really changed since I've been at HBO, um, which has been over six years now. And our directive hasn't changed. Um, we definitely have made more programming than we used to. The, the um, 
output is greater, but um, it's sort of for at least a team I'm on, eyes on your own paper, just keep doing this thing uh, that you're doing. I think HBO Max is doing terrific stuff as well. They, you know, I think it's a more transitional uh, or evolving type of thing because they're new, but uh, yeah, that's kind of us. But is there an awareness that certain shows you're making for HBO realistically are going to end up with most of their audience coming from HBO Max oh. down the road? Because not all of them. Some of them will still be watched linearly. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of our viewers watch stuff. Yes. Uh, honestly, I watch, you know, yes, correct. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was sort of just differentiating sure. the, no, uh, the, the brands, but yes. I'm just pointing to the, I'm pointing to the blurring within the industry and how yeah. walls are coming down. Let's, yeah. let's get a couple questions from the audience because I'm sure people have, let's go there. Oop, yep, yep, yep. When a writer comes, I've been reading all of these articles about, you know, the shortage of showrunners and I'm, I'm a writer myself, but not a showrunner yet. And so I'm constantly going to showrunners and saying, hey, do you want to run my show and you know, attach yourself and help me sell it? And everyone's busy. And so my question to you as buyers, you know, are you taking chances on new writers now and you know, trusting them to run shows if you're pairing them? Or does that world still not exist? And kind of what is the future of that in television? Uh, I, I can take that. Um, in truth, I, what's great about being at a smaller company like Showtime is we can be really nimble. So if a great concept comes in and a showrunner's not attached, a lot of what we do is thinking about, you know, if this is a great idea, we want your creative across it. You're the one that had the vision. You're the one that's going to have that cohesive approach across the entire show. And we're small enough that we can couture the approach to where your skill set is. If you're a great writer, great, but you haven't spent a ton of time on set, we can help pair you with the right team or the right infrastructure in this way. And in truth, a lot of our shows, actually the majority of our shows, have had first-time showrunners. And you know, and what's a total pleasure is to see you know, that pairing start off in the first couple years and then in success see the writers get to grow into the role of a showrunner, hands down, this is what they're meant to be, where they don't need that support system anymore. That's how you know you've done your job right. So for us, it's, you know, we we don't have any mandate that says you come in with a showrunner in place. All we ask for is, you know, are, are you a writer who's capable of collaborating with other people? It's a collaborative medium. And, uh, and sticking with your product all the way through and you know, having a vision that we can support and work with us. I'm gonna go a little off topic. Um, I was an agent, a literary agent, before I, I went into producing, and so I always love helping writers and giving advice to writers, and like, I know it's so challenging to break into this business, and if you can, though, to try and staff, I really feel like it is such an invaluable experience, you know, to, it, it's one of the best things about the entertainment industry is that you can start at the bottom and work your way up. I think all of us here have done that. It doesn't matter who your dad is or your uncle. You still have to start at the bottom, you know? Um, and I think for TV writing, TV is, making a television show is so challenging. So being able to see how others do it, do it, to be in a room and watch how the magic happens, I just, if you can, you know, um, you know, using your own personal life experience, writing samples, uh, you know, going after shows that, you know, you feel like you could be such a perfect fit for, having the right team to help you with that, I just want to say try. Yeah. <laughs> I, I totally agree with that yeah. in every way possible. You just always get in a room. Yeah. And also, I would, for what it's worth, from my end of things, just to tag onto that, um, when someone comes into my office and they have, they had not a showrunner, but they have like an amazing take on something, they want to package it with this and whatever, um, if you get, if you're so lucky to get that far to sell it and make it, I would never. This is going to sound really extreme. I would never let someone do that job on their own. Um, I think it's mean if you let someone do that job on their own because it is. It's even with most successful, experienced upper-level writers, they always need a partner. Whether it's like a strong producer, but I would, I would say, an upper-level writer as your partner, I would. I just would never let it happen. I mean, and I learned that from, I worked with J.J. Abrams and then Jonah Nolan and 
Lisa Joy, and they would also say the same thing. They could never have done any of those shows on their own. It's just, mm -hmm. you just can't do it. So, I know that's not the answer. You need a partner, but like I just would always. <laughs> oh, no, 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 that makes a lot yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. There were, let's get microphone over here. There was a question there. And With uh, vertical integration, how important is it from the beginning, from the development stage, to look at it from an international marketplace in terms of projects? Are you thinking always, are you always thinking globally, or are you thinking, okay, well, this will just, we'll focus on this for the North American marketplace, and then if it, if it travels well, great. And then second prong for E1, um, because of Hasbro connection, um, is there a lot more conversations within the, the, the different, I don't want to say silos, but silos, I guess, in a way, um, in terms of doing more with the merchandise and the IP on that respect on a global perspective as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, uh, when we develop shows, yes, obviously we want shows that will travel, you know? When we first started developing Yellow Jackets and you, you looked at the, you know, we went to our sales team and they were like, huh, Dane girls, like, this is never gonna work internationally, <laughs> which is, they made a mistake there, but anyway. Um, <laughs> So you never know. You don't know what's going to travel. So I mean, I think it's, do you have stories that you feel have universal appeal that are, you know, I, I, that are, that are, yes, we, we do. At E1, we are trying to think bigger, right? Um, but it's not, it's not that we don't let the tail wag the dog or, you know, with whatever the saying is. So there's that. Um, on, as far as the IP, a um, hundred percent. You know, I think that's part of the reason why Hasbro body one. You know, obviously we we had Peppa Pig, which I don't know if you guys know about Peppa Pig, but <laughs> that's an E1 claim to fame. Um, PJ Mask, and, and uh, we had a huge, huge, huge preschool division. So, and then we had this arm, this you know production t film and TV studio. So, um, and I think that's a big part of it. I mean, they made. Um, obviously Transformers, and they made so many things where they would just license them, you know, license their brands, and now we're going to be able to, you know, own things wholly, you know. Um, we, we have a deal with Paramount, and, and we're split, but we have a much bigger ownership over D&D &D and other things like that. So, absolutely. And we look, yeah, absolutely. And I'll do it internationally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I can only, we have, we have teams all over the world, and so, a little bit um i can only speak from my perspective how we do it but i one thing that has changed over the past several years is that we're much more um eager uh to tell stories in native languages like from all different parts of the world so you know i i work on a show that just uh comes out on monday that's like one third in french um you know we have a show my brilliant friend it's all in italian um you know, we had a show a couple years ago that was all in Hebrew. So I think we're in the place that if we love a project, it, the audiences are so sophisticated now that it's important to tell the story as authentically as possible, including the language and the cast and the whole, you know, the creators top down, just being um, true to where the story is. That's kind of the extent of my international purview. So I'm not sure if that's what you meant, but yeah. The French show, by the way, Irma Vep. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, I believe we are out of time, but we will definitely be back in like five years to discuss what the future is <laughs> as of 2027. So thank you so much to Kara, Jackie, Jesse, Athena, and Dan, and thank all of you for coming. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas, between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.